Welcome to the Uncovered Podcast, where we take a deeper look into the ideas, companies, and entrepreneurs that are creating the future and uncover the stories you haven't heard. Uncovered is presented by PJC, an early-stage venture capital firm committed to supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs. I'm Rob May, general partner at uh, PJC, and um, we do this podcast to try to look at the entrepreneurs and ideas that are not covered as much as they should be in the tech press. And so today, I'm very excited to have here in our Boston recording studio, uh, Drew Magliazzi from EdmitHub. Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rob. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what EdmitHub does to get started? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm an ed tech entrepreneur, primarily. Spent my entire career building software. And EdmitHub is a communications platform that combines uh, the best parts of people science uh, with the power of AI to scale uh, student impact, essentially, uh, to help people get to and through college. And the vector that we use or the means of doing that right now is a chatbot. So we tend to engage students every day in a back and forth text message conversation to support them on the barriers and uh, sort of mindset interventions that will help them get to and through college at higher rates. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because when um, when I first ran into you and you were telling me about this problem, uh, you you were talking about the term that the industry uses is summer melt. Yes, is the initial problem you guys set up to solve. You obviously went to Harvard that doesn't really have a summer melt problem. Um, and so, how did you how did you find out that this was an issue and decide to use a chatbot to solve it? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I'm always sort of reading things, and actually, there's a great book titled "Appropriately Summer Melt," uh, written by two Harvard grad students who subsequently became professors, and they identified this problem where students um, in this country, I think it's about uh, 15% of them, will apply, get admitted to, and then uh, fail to enroll in college. Uh, All told, it's about 350,000 students a year. And typically, uh, while this is a big societal problem, unfortunately, it's not a huge problem for most schools because they model in the attrition of, you know, 15% of people will melt. We just admit 15% more and our numbers take care of themselves. It's only typically a problem when it's escalating on schools and they have trouble predicting it. Uh, So we ended up uh, reading this book, obviously, by Lindsay Page and um, Ben Castleman and reaching out to them and saying, you know, we'd love to work with you. And Dr. Page was awesome. And she said, the technology you've built is essentially like, version 3.0 of the software we used, where they basically manually text message students over the summer to help them overcome enrollment problems. And we ended up running an RCT with our very first customer. Um, That's a randomized control trial for those listening at home, uh, which is uh, sort of the most scientific scrutiny you can put on yourself. It's essentially the benchmark for drugs getting accepted to market. And... um, it was definitely a recipe for sleepless nights and gray hair uh, as a startup founder. Uh, but the, the end result was that it proved the efficacy of the product, which was awesome. But not only did it prove that, you know, we moved the needle on melt, we reduced it by about 21% and increased enrollment about uh, 4%, which all told, I think, netted the university about $3 million in tuition revenue immediately. Um, which they, they don't... They don't like you to use business-like terms like revenue, but that's effectively what it is to them, It depends right? who you ask, but yeah, typically they don't put it in revenue terms. Um, but the interesting thing was that we learned not the, the overall end result, which was cool, but actually it was all the intermediate stuff. 
And the way we got the impact was basically identifying all the tiny road bumps along the way and designing sort of behavioral nudge strategies that we could deploy at scale with AI uh, that help people overcome them. And it was sort of the accumulation of all those tiny behaviors that led to a big outcome at the end. And we thought to ourselves, this is cool. Like, I wonder what else we can do with this. And actually over the last year, um, you can say this now actually, uh, we've, the, the researcher Lindsay Page uh, and us in Georgia State have just completed another RCT, which is mm -hmm. kind of more exciting. Well, we started with MELT. We wanted to see what the biggest problem in higher ed is not students who fail to enroll, but those who do and fail to graduate, which is a massive problem. Um, in this country, almost half of people fail to graduate, which um, is the worst case scenario because you have a ton of debt and frankly, no degree, to, no degree, to, no degree <laughs> yeah. to show for it. Um, and so and, we, yeah. And so does your, so does your, does your bot like chat with them at like midnight on a Saturday night and be like, Hey, stop drinking. You should be studying. <laughs> Good question. Uh, we haven't gotten to the stop drinking yet, uh, but we probably should. Uh, depends on the campus, how, how much Greek life there is. But um, it, it is funny, like we do chat with them. At, I mean, they actually reach out to us oftentimes, like literally sitting in bed, I imagine, at 2 a.m. asking us the question that's like literally keeping them up at night. Um, and frankly, we designed a nudge strategy around the behaviors that we thought in collaboration with Georgia State would be the things that drove momentum through college as well as getting them there. And so pretty excitingly, we moved the needle on them like in astounding ways. Wow. And it's uh, we just got the results um, a few weeks ago, and it looks like about a three to four percent increase in year-to-year -year retention. So again, there's about three or four hundred students in, taking the next step in their college journey who wouldn't have otherwise, uh, which is very cool. And again, is millions of dollars in tuition revenue. Um, and kind of is the silver bullet. To my knowledge, there's never been RCT that's shown a technology product has moved the needle at scale on this problem ever before. So I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, what comes of it and what we can keep pushing the needle on in terms of the research. But uh, that's very awesome. And those schools yeah. are judged a lot of times on their graduation rates and, and other kinds of things against each other. Right. So that's yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a massive problem, particularly among like minority, low income, first gen student populations, which we typically drive the most impact for. Yeah, so fingers crossed that we keep pushing the needle on it. Um, we got a few more RCTs cooking. That's cool. And so you you guys are obviously based in Boston, um, and this episode is on uh, Boston entrepreneurs. Uh, or the season, I should say, is on Boston entrepreneurs. Uh, what made you decide to stay here? And we hear a lot about the you know like enterprise versus consumer debate whether you should you know stay in Boston or go to the Valley or New York or whatever. But like nobody talks about edtech. What's edtech like in Boston? Are you guys happy with your experience here? Um, I mean. You might be underwhelmed by this decision. <laughs> uh, it was my family, basically. My wife and I have two kids, and the free grandparent childcare is yeah. probably the biggest differentiating factor. Boston to anywhere else. Um, oddly enough, I think Boston is like kind of soured on ed tech a little yeah. bit. I think there's been a huge bunch of hype and promise here, uh, and a lot of disappointment to date. Um, and so it, it's not. A, it, oddly enough, the school systems are sort of the later adopters, both K-12 and higher ed in, in the Northeast, you get much more adoption in the South and Southwest. Um, and the investors here, uh, we've actually, I, and most of your money came from New York and San Francisco. Yeah. Right? All, almost all of it. Yeah. I mean, a handful of angels. In fact, I, 
never even got any meetings here in Boston. Yeah. One, maybe one. Um, but no one would even talk to me. They'd say, Ed, we're doing a tech and they'd say, thanks, but no, thanks. We're out. Um, and we ended up raising from, you know, two West coast firms, one New York firm. Um, and then I, I think we can announce this now. We just raised some money from Google and Salesforce as well, which should be public by the time this goes live. Um, I think we're tasty to those investors. We have East coast valuations, uh, for those West coast funds. Uh, so we'll see where it continues to go and where we raise future rounds from. But it's been funny. I, I think we've gone largely under the radar, undercover here in Boston. Um, but there's some good buzz about us on the West Coast. Yeah, I'm very yeah. like it's George Costanza about it. Like I go, yeah. I do like the show out there, and I leave and leave yeah. a little bit of mystery and intrigue about It'll myself. Be behind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> like uh, yeah, showmanship. Yeah. Although I get it, I get I get the the ideas. I, you know, I get that the investors are against it because if I remember it correctly, the way we met was I saw you guys present at TechStars, and then you asked me to invest, and I said no. Yes. And then you asked me to be on the board, and I said no. And you came back later and said, are you "No, sure? really, look at our numbers. You should be on the board." And I was like, "Wow, you guys are doing really well." <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah. So third time's the charm, I guess. I, uh, uh, it's it's don't it's, take no for an answer. Yeah, what's what's hard about building companies, right, is people, you know, you, you have to you have to filter, so you have to form theses and everything else. Um, and hard, but the hard thing about having the theses is almost every successful company is an outlier in some way, yes. right? There's some magic in the business model. There's some timing aspect or something that just you know people don't. It's it's not as predictable and scientific as I think some people want to make it. At least that's my opinion. Uh, and so you're constantly looking for things that don't fit the model, actually, but in some good way, right? Like, wow, this really stands out. Um, and that's what was so interesting about you guys was when you were starting, you started at a time when people hated chatbots. Yes. Like, they're stupid, they're dumb, they don't do anything. And you were actually seeing people engage, which was really unique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and to some degree, obviously, you know, I looked at all the engagement and saw, you know, I focus on the negatives and see the catastrophes of the errors that it makes. But it's stunning, you know, I think you mentioned some metrics, like the metrics obviously that matter most to us are the human behaviors that we can encourage. And frankly, like focusing relentlessly on those, the product metrics to some degree are secondary. If we know, you know, you may not engage with us, but this thing you received helps you take action. Um, that's the really the golden ticket uh, is to be able to change human behavior in the real world with like the smallest possible intervention, I think. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people that will listen to this podcast uh, are probably first-time CEOs or hope to be a first-time CEO someday of a venture-backed company. And um, and this is the life you're living right now. And so what what's your sort of undercover piece of advice of like, man, people don't tell you this, but if you're going to go be a CEO, like what's your either piece of advice or your thing that was most unexpected or, or some tidbit like that? Well, the funny thing is, uh, so I had a child literally like a month after we raised our first institutional funding and a second child, not a year, oh, two years yeah, after. Two startups. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's funny. Um, I don't necessarily think I would encourage people to do that in particular. But one of the things that having kids, and I think you have this experience too, is it requires you to like relentlessly prioritize and focus. Because yeah. I don't have any spare cycles to do anything that's not the, of the highest value. Right. And frankly, like I think it's given me more discipline and it's whatever you can do to conjure that focus. Honestly, I think like the, the necessity of stepping away and unplugging has actually helped me use the time when I do work like with like the utmost essentialism. 
Yeah, kids definitely, like as somebody who's a fellow workaholic, like my kids actually helped me step back. Yeah. Right? Because I have to spend some time with them. I'm not going to sit and check email all day Saturday. You know, I mean, you do have to check in because that's your job. But, you know, you go away with them to the park for a couple hours or to the children's museum and um, and, and you sit there. And, and I agree. I think it does help with the prioritization because, you know, if you're not going to go home one night and you're going to go to a dinner or you're going to go sit on a panel or give a speech or, or whatever, listen to a talk, yes. you have to decide, like, I mean, obviously, you, you do need some amount of social time in your life, but you have to decide, like, is tonight worth it, right? Is this going to be good for the company or good for me or do I really need this? Like, you can't go to stuff just to fill time the way you can sometimes when you're younger and single and all that. Yes, and nap time happens between 2 and 4 p.m. on Saturday, <laughs> yeah. and that's a window where I need to crank and crank yeah. in a very focused way. I also get to practice all my managerial tactics on my children. which yeah. uh, Kids and employees, very similar <laughs> strategies. I'm sure it will send them into therapy at some point in their lives, but uh, for the time being, you know, it's it's good test bed. Yeah, uh, that's cool. So talk a little bit about... Um, you know, you guys have an AI product and you were very early in the AI space. And one of the things that's been consistently in the news over the years, particularly in a lot of high profile, you know, big companies like Google and IBM and, and, and places like that, but has been like the failure of AI to be implemented, right? Mm. So, so what do you guys see at AdmitHub in terms of what do the companies do right when they implement it and what kind of impact can it really have? And like, when it doesn't go well, is there a is there a consistent cause or is it always unique? Interesting. Well, it's funny that I honestly think of us more as like a behavioral science or people science company. Like my focus generally is obviously I'm interested in AI because it's fascinating. But typically when we're talking about go to market with a product, it's like what is the research say in the behavioral science or behavioral economics world that says we can change someone's mindset, behaviors or like uh, you know, patterns of operating. And then it's the question is, oh, and now how can we scale that? Because you typically those research projects are, oh, we got 300 people with this particular intervention to do this thing at higher rates. It's like, oh, that's fascinating. How can we scale that to 300,000 people with AI is generally the lens. It's like crashing these two like bleeding edge uh, scientific advancements together and sort of seeing the atomic elements that fall out and picking the best ones and like relentlessly testing them. That tends to be the approach. So it's like we're more of a people science company that uses AI to scale in radical ways. Um, but obviously the AI advancements are hugely beneficial. I think there's so much more low hanging fruit that we can also uh, get from AI, which is on the roadmap obviously for next year. Um, because like all AI companies, we throw people at a problem, the artificial, artificial intelligence first. And until that becomes an economic issue, uh, we, we don't fix it. But I think there's, there's huge opportunities there in the future to apply data science and predictive models to basically just uh, elevate and empower our people to be more scalable. Yeah. And we've seen that a lot. I mean, I, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some AI investment theses in a minute, but one of my early theses was that that was exactly how you do AI and you, uh, you know, the, the things that the humans do, um, you can start to label those and build data sets and you can eventually automate them if you want. Yep. And I know so many people who, so many investors who miss that wave because they would look at some of these companies and they would go, you know, this is just a services company. Yes. And it's like, no, 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 it's, it's not, you don't understand. Right. And, um, and so I think one of the things I love about investing uh, in the AI spaces, there's so many people that don't understand pieces of where it's going and what's really possible and what's not. There's so much hype, so much misinformation that it's, um, 
it's kind of, it's kind of easy to find pockets of stuff that the vast majority of people don't believe in that I really like. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Like what are your theses? Yeah. So, so let's do so, 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 I, so I keep this deck here at PJC that we revise from time to time that says, um, you know, here, here are the AI theses that we see that we think most of the market doesn't see yet. Right. And so we're, we're looking for these and if you see some, you know, uh, bring them our way. But, um, and so, so, so I'll give you, so, so we have an eight or 10 on it, but I'll give you four. Um, and so you, you tell me if you agree or disagree. If, it, if, I, if it's stupid thesis. A lightning or, round. Yeah. Well, and you can explain why if you want. So, um, so first one is synthetic data. Uh, we've actually uh, are in process of making our first investment in this space. Um, and my belief on that is twofold. Number one, that there are a lot of robotic systems where um, you just need it to train because training, you know, yep. real world environments is just going to be too much. You can't buy a thousand houses and have the robot go through them all and, and, and whatever. Um, and then the second is um, that I think that the way that you have bugs in software and, mm-hmm. um, and you have a process for fixing those, well, you're going to have models that don't work as well as you hope. And I yes. think there's going to be tools that you integrate with to improve the models. And part of that's going to be, well, Drew's face doesn't look that good in, you know, bar lighting. Uh, and so let me generate some more synthetic in- images from all the faces I have in bar lighting and retrain my model. And that's all mm-hmm. going to be automated. So um, thoughts on synthetic data? I Well, obviously, generative adversarial networks yes. are like one of the most fascinating breakthroughs, uh, terrifying in some ways, exciting in others. Um, I'm bullish on synthetic data, but also like I, the one thing I'm sort of skeptical about is I think if you over-index on it, you neglect the sort of unknown unknowns. Because sure. I thought about this in student scenarios, like a lot of data we get from, we tap into the data systems of schools. And I realized that like, frankly, most of the data they give us is noise and it's trailing indicators. And it's like, well, the, the really the, the most juicy data they don't really have. Uh, it, it's really in the minds of the individuals and we have to get, hopefully our tool is a way to extract that and get them to tell us how they're doing. And I wonder if in other systems, like it's really those black swan sorts of data uh, events. And I would be fascinated to see a, a sort of a synthetic data company that for instance, could generate the, those black swan events, maybe in financial uh, institutional data or in, other, in uh, autonomous vehicles and uh, sort of image recognition that sort of can realistically mimic something that might happen at the, the outskirts of the data sets in the real world. Netflix's chaos monkey system plus yes. synthetic data, right? Like, yeah, yeah. There's a there there. We're gonna, we're gonna, yeah, we're going to put, if you're, if you're building that, send me an email. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that kind of actually leads into uh, one of my next theses, which is, um, you know, uh, causality, uh, which mm-hmm. is a big trend in AI. Judea Pearl just wrote a book on this, the computer science professor. Um, and it's this idea that uh, one of the challenges sometimes to your point about data is that you have so much data, you find correlations where mm-hmm. there actually is no causality and you make assumptions about things that are wrong. Huh. Um, there's actually a great website out there about spurious correlations where they show things in data like you know, number of movies Nicolas Cage is in, a number of people who drown in a pool in North America, right? And they track each other very closely. Which have you ever seen a Nick Cage movie? Am <laughs> I driving you to yeah, take maybe. some extreme actions? Um, yeah. So I, AI, AI understanding causality. Heck, humans understanding causality is like a huge one. Yeah, sure, we, I mean, you're talking about like epistemology at its finest. I. There's For those a, of you who don't know that word, epistemology is the study of how people know things. Yes. So. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm getting too yeah. deep. I am a 
Buddhist. I was raised Catholic, but I'm a converted Buddhist. And there's a topic in Buddhism called dependent co-arising, which is that like, it's sort of cause and effect, but it's like, you can't really tease them apart about which one causes the other because two things sort of rise up. It's a very complicated idea. you, You can turn over your minds a lot. And so like, to some degree, like it's almost always like a, multivariate system that we're talking about and like one could be said to cause something and then the thing it causes could also reinforce it in a cycle i i don't know if it matters what causes what so long as like something rising results in another thing rising um because all we're talking about is like predicting the future and maybe obviously to be able to do it right there needs to be causality to some degree um, but I don't know. Make a lot of money with correlation, maybe. You can't. I think yeah. you can make a lot of mo- predictive and maybe tease out some causation in the process. But, um, uh, you know, A results in B is very easy to predict. A results in B and C and D and E and F, which actually causes A to increase, is a stream of uh, causal relationship, which is probably beguiling to the human mind. But maybe a machine could tease out. Um, because it doesn't need to know all the steps. It just needs to know the sort of general predictive structure. I don't know. There might be something there. Um, who knows? All right. I'm, I'm skeptical, like, skeptical I'm on skeptical. Two. Let's um, see this number not, two. Not just on the business value, but on whether causality exists philosophically. <laughs> yeah, we're <laughs> deep down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Okay. That's another podcast. Uh, Boston business leaders opine on philosophy. Yeah. Get, that's, that's yeah, get to the get philosophy departments. Get Noam Chomsky. Oh, he's not. Yeah. Um, so thesis number three, um, robotics companies as software companies. So the idea that uh, robotics parts are becoming standard enough that you don't have to have a whole lot of hardware expertise. Mm. Um, you don't have to build a whole lot of pieces. You can basically buy most of it off the shelf and you look like a software company. You're really about programming the software, you know, tweaking the hardware, maybe 5% and, um, you know, training the robot and the machine learning models of the robot to do certain things. Mm. I, I think the economics are going to improve for robotics companies as we see that trend. I have a hunch you, you talk about this one a lot uh, with your significant other. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, for sure. Um, I mean, the, obviously the ability well, AI to solve a Rubik's cube one-handed is maybe a parlor trick, but is a fascinating example of the software engineers to be able to produce something that's pretty astounding. Um, but I also maybe would push it one step further, which is robotics companies as service companies, because you can the, see the way Amazon sets up their warehouses and the robots that interact. But like to do so requires like such a deeply ingrained process into like the business flow and the human sure. beings in there that I think a software engineer building a model alone might be able to make a really great picker of products that doesn't. Uh, fail and and can do it gently and delicately but to really enable that into the context of the business is like a whole different ball game that requires more than engineering and I wonder if it's just like a deep uh, service level understanding I mean you and I have talked about this which is like our AI company. It's like software as a service. You even wrote a blog yeah. about this. Services as a software. Service. I wrote a, in my newsletter inside AI. I wrote about that at one point. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think there's something there where 
the engine, yes, we are certainly continuing to elevate the expertise and value of the software engineer, but I think it also necessitates the like equal, uh, the dependent co-arising, if you will, of the um, the product manager, the person who can like deeply empathize and understand the problem so that it's implemented properly. Um, yes, I'm okay. I'm bullish. It's a yes and on that one. Okay. I Crash that into your service as a software. All right. So, uh, which is one of my other theses that I wasn't going to talk about today. But yeah. oh, sorry. <laughs> Let the okay. cat out of the bag. Uh, and then uh, fourth one uh, for today um, is uh, non-neural network AI. So are we reaching the limits of neural networks? Um, they're too computationally mm-hmm. intensive, lack of explainability. Are we going to see returns to you know Bayesian models, symbolic logic processing, and things like that? There, I yes, I think so. Um, well, it depends, I suppose, uh, on how quick the cost effectiveness of some of these things can continue. I mean, as neural networks become more complicated, they become a lot more expensive to train and certainly augment as you go. And I suppose, I think it will probably be just like the layering and stacking of neural nets so that you might have one more static neural net. Uh, that is doing uh, the sort of deep processing, but you might have a series of other, like the AI5, where you have simpler uh, models that are doing uh, some of the things that can be tweaked on the fly a bit more easily. It's probably, as all things, an ensemble approach that will end up working best. I'd have a hunch. Depends on the problem, probably. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm constantly amazed like how they can compress these models and put them on phones or on chips to really do processing, like the facial recognition on your phone, on my phone. I don't know about that broke-ass phone you're using. (laughs) But the fact that they were able to compress that model to the size that it can fit in whatever processor, not take up the entire memory of my phone to be able to recognize my face in a legitimate way is pretty astounding. Same with Google Translate doing it offline. Like the fact that they've compressed a language model to to like 95 megabytes is like mind blowing to me. So it depends on, I guess, the rate at which that those compression techniques and the optimization techniques will be able to uh, advance. But as we get more complex, it it will probably necessitate some sort of ensemble model or something. Um, That's my hunch. Good. Yeah. So Uh, bearish. Yeah. All right. But yeah, maybe bullish. I'll give bullish on that. All right. Ambivalent. And really, yeah. Uh, There's always like it's always like a yes, maybe depends maybe on the problem. Enough. But like for sure, if you're gonna build like financial software to like massively crunch like a whole bunch of data, you want to be nimble and you want to be accurate, and that's gonna take like an ensemble approach, like you yeah. probably hundreds of models probably to look at all different facets of your data set. Luckily, I don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I just try to parse emojis that kids text me. Um, Cool. Well, Drew, uh, thanks for being on the program today. And um, if you guys want to check out AdmitHub, uh, it's just admithub.com. And um, if you have questions you'd like us to ask future guests, things you'd like us to talk about, or people that you think should be on the program, please send those to podcast at pjc.vc. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Uncovered Podcast. To learn more about PJC and the Uncovered Podcast, visit us at www.pjc.vc or email us at podcast at pjc.vc.